A little boy clings to his life after drowning in Florida. Today we're going to talk about all things pool safety. Very important episode. Boney Olam apologizes for erasing women. Who did they erase and what prompted the retraction? And it's the longest enduring hatred in the world. Anti-Semitism, 550 pages of it in a beautiful new book. I am so excited to bring you the author of A Brief and Visual Guide to Anti-Semitism. Israel Beton is here for a great conversation on my favorite subject. This is the Weekly Squeeze. I am your talented and charming host, Hanala Music, coming at you from the land of Israel. This is episode 109. So glad that you are here. It is an absolutely stunning day here in the land of Israel. It was stunning yesterday and the day before, which is why I went over to the Mishtala, my Israeli flower guy, and I picked up some daisies that are living happily ever after on my porch. Do I have a problem? Maybe, but not really, because I didn't get convinced to buy a computer yesterday that would connect to an irrigation system that would digitally water my plants which is what the Mishtala guy, the flower guy, was trying to convince me to do. And I was like, do you know my husband? <laughs> I'm not buying a digital watering system. Just give me the daisies and let me go and nobody gets hurt. You see, Israelis don't get sprinkler systems. We don't just pluck water vicariously all over the place. We use these little tubes that go directly into each plant to nourish each flower bud with exactly the amount of water that it needs. So he's trying to convince me to buy that. And then I was like, I'm not spending 2000 shekel on that. It's just not happening. So then he tried to convince me to buy a hose with a bunch of attachments. And I was like, I'm not buying that either. And then I just bought a big watering can. And now I'm officially a gardener because I have a watering can, a straw hat, and some sunflowers. I know I said daisies, but I also bought sunflowers. <laughs> All right. Today is an important episode. Um, it's been two weeks since a terrible tragedy took place in Florida, something that's personal and close to my heart. My grandmother had two sisters. One was Fagel and one is Shandel. Fagel has passed, but her grandson, unfortunately, is in the hospital now with his son, a three-year-old boy who fell into a swimming pool during a barbecue two weeks ago. Yes, the parents were at the pool. Yes, he was wearing floaties. Yes, they were watching. Yes, they are aware of the dangers, but it happened in the blink of an eye. Somebody took off his floaties so he can eat and 10 minutes later, somebody noticed him floating in the pool. They pulled him out. He didn't have a pulse for eight minutes. And now he's in the hospital and waiting for a Yeshua. Really, really tragic. Let me give you that information right now so you can just jot it down. Rafal Chaimeir Ben Sima Chasha. He's three years old. He needs a Rafal Shalema. And we are all davening for him and doing as many mitzvahs as possible. And that's really what the campaign is about. They need prayers. They need our good deeds for Rafua, for Rafal Mayor Ben Simachasha. So please spread the word. And if you can, get your kids involved. I saw Charlene. Charlene Aminoff was in town and she went to the hospital and she was standing with Hasia and she was pleading with people to please discuss this with your children. Take on mitzvahs. Daven for this boy. He needs a miracle. Now, as you might know, Charlene Aminoff experienced exactly this when her daughter fell into a pool and they pulled her out to perform CPR and Baruch Hashem, there was a tremendous nace and Gali survived the drowning and today she's perfectly healthy and wonderful, which is what we are hoping for in this case as well. At the time, Charlene immediately committed to putting on a shaitol. I actually wrote a song called Gali Song that was performed by the Brooklyn Girls Choir. I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes so you guys can listen about that experience and how traumatic and life-changing it was for the Amina family. And now the Diamond family is dealing with this and it is absolutely tragic. Did it have to happen? 
listen, everything is Hashem. We don't know Hashem's ways. And sometimes we do whatever we can and a building falls on our heads. So who's to say who's responsible for something like this? On the other hand, on the other hand, drowning is always, always preventable. So that's why today I figured we would go over all the precautions, all the home swimming pool safety tips that parents must know and uh, hopefully save a life. I grew up with a pool, and when we lived in Florida, we had a pool, and I know friends whose children have drowned in pools. Some have survived, some haven't. But drowning is a serious threat, and it is up to us, the parents, to keep our children safe. Drowning happens extremely fast, and it is still the leading cause of death by unintentional injury in kids ages one through four in the U.S., which is crazy, and not just pools. Oceans, lakes, streams, bathtubs, even buckets of water. However, most kids do drown in pools. And pools are great. Pools are a great way to keep your kids entertained. My kids swam literally every single day. But water has no mercy. Having an unfenced pool is like having an uncaged lion in your backyard. It's like having a loaded gun on your kitchen table. So to a kid, that big furry animal, it looks like something fun to play with. It's appealing. It's tempting. But we as adults know that a lion is deadly and can kill your child. So it's extremely important to talk about this and really set up a plan, a drowning prevention plan. If you are near a pool, if you have neighbors with a pool, if you're going away for the summer where there will be a pool or or not, even if there is no pool, even if you guys have nothing to do with your community YMCA, you still have to teach your kids about pool safety because there are bodies of water Everywhere here in the land of Israel, there are kids who fall, who drown in lakes, kids who drown in puddles, kids who drown in swamps. Bodies of water attract children, and unfortunately, every single year we have to go over this. So here we go. The first thing we need to do is start talking about it. You know, as scary and upsetting as drowning is, people don't even want to think about it. It's like the most horrible thing that could possibly happen to a parent. It has to become part of the conversation. We talk about sleep schedules. We talk about car seats. We talk about phone safety, but we don't talk about the number one thing that can snatch our child's life in a second, the most devastating thing that could happen to any family, any time of year, any time of day. It has to be discussed. And now that there was a drowning in our community, it's extremely important that we get this conversation going and that parents talk about it between themselves and with their kids. Now, in case you're thinking, well, we're, we're literally never at the pool. Well, 70% of childhood drownings happen when kids aren't swimming. Okay, they just wander over to a, to a neighbor's yard. They slip through an unlocked back door uh, or they tumble into a kiddie pool that's filled with rainwater. These things happen and we have to teach young children that water is extremely dangerous, just like a car. You can't go near water without a grown-up, just like you don't cross the street without a grown-up. It's dangerous. And it's it, it might feel weird to say that. You know, the pool is dangerous. It's also the funnest thing in our house, but it's very dangerous. But it's also very fun and we love it, but it's also very dangerous. Those two things don't have to be an oxymoron. We can implement into our kids' brains that the pool is a death trap if they don't know how to swim or if a grown-up is not there. The next thing we have to remember is that when everybody's watching, nobody's watching. And that's why, 
And this is a great tip that I highly recommend you implement if you are a group of parents that have kids by the pool or if you're going away for the summer and you're all, you know, responsible and watching. You need one person to be on water watching duty because when everybody's watching, nobody's watching. That's just the way it is. That person wears a tag and if they leave the pool to take the kid to the bathroom or for the day, they give that tag to another parent. You are in charge, even if there's a lifeguard. This has nothing to do. One parent has to know that they are fully responsible to keep every single kid in the pool alive. And that parent will not be on their phone. And I don't mean to leave your phone at home. You have to have your phone in case you have to call 911. But a, a child can slip under the surface of the water and drown in seconds, the time that it takes to post on Instagram. So don't leave your phone at home. Keep it fully charged and within reach in case of an emergency. But silence it and put it in your bag and tell your friends to do the same. No phones at the pool at all. Next thing, obviously, are swimming lessons. Now, swimming lessons can be expensive, especially if you don't live close to water. You might think you don't need it, but you know what? You're going to end up on vacation or at somebody else's home, and swimming lessons could be all the difference between a child sinking to the bottom of the pool and being able to tread water or paddle himself to the edge of the pool and yell for help if he feels he needs to come out or something's going wrong. And yes, you can start between the ages of one and four. Obviously, it depends on your kid, but swimming lessons, they are crucial. And the earlier, the better. So if you can manage it, if you can get a, a group of parents together, if you could rent a pool for a couple of weeks and get all your kids swimming, that will greatly improve the chance that a kid survives uh, a pool issue. And kids have issues in the pool. That's just the way they are. I remember being in the pool with my cousin in my grandparents' pool, and we were playing with hockey sticks because it was in the 80s. And in the 80s, there were no rules. <laughs> and I hit him on the head with a hockey stick. I remember until today, and he started bleeding, and he had to be taken to the hospital for stitches. I'm so sorry, Shmuley. I've apologized before, but, you know, just in case you still have a scar. But, yeah, kids are stupid, and they make stupid decisions, especially when they're all being ruckus and having a good time under the sun. Now, as far as the pool itself goes, if you have a swimming pool, you have to have somebody come once a year to check that there are no loose screws or rough edges that could catch a bathing suit or hair or, extremely critical, an exposed pool drain. An exposed pool drain that sucks the water to clean it that goes into the filter round and round. It could trap a swimmer at the bottom of the pool by sucking their hair, making it almost impossible for the kid to get out or for you even to slap your kid out. God forbid, chas v'shalom. So if you come across a pool or a spa with an exposed hole at the bottom, alert the owner, and keep everyone out of the water. And if you're not 100% sure, well, just put a bathing cap on your kid just to be safe. Now, let's talk about above-ground pools. Here in Israel, above-ground pools are super popular. My neighbor has one downstairs. There is no gate around it, and a kid could drown in it. And that's why my kids know that they cannot be outside on the porch unless a grown-up is there. Because a child can drown in less than two inches of water. Even the tiniest little kiddie pool, you have to watch your kids. And those big inflatable pools, as tempting as they look, they can hold thousands of gallons of water and they're not easily drained. That's why we don't have a pool because I just don't want to deal with it. But above ground pools are very popular here in Israel and I only let my kids go swimming when there's a lifeguard or parents that are committed to watching the kids without any distraction. Also, in your house, make sure you empty buckets. If you have a curious toddler, you want to lock your toilet. Yes, a child can, lock, can drown in the toilet and children have drowned in the toilet. And of course, the number one rule, always, always stay with your child during bath time. I know it's tempting. You're just going to run to open the door and, and you just have to quickly shut the fire and a kid is calling you and, and, and your, your toddler's big already and there's barely any water in there. But kids are stupid. 
They bang their heads. They drink shampoo. They stand up on the edge of the, uh, of the bathtub. And this is how accidents happen that we spend the rest of our lives regretting. So never, ever, ever leave your kid in a, in a bathtub and always, always drain it before you leave. Because sometimes you forget. You know, you take your kid out, you wrap them in a towel, you forget there's water in there and chas v'shalom. That could lead to an accident. Another important thing, never ever rely on water wings, floaties, tubes, or noodles. Those are toys. If your kid can't swim, that will not save them. All right, let's move on to how to keep your actual pool safe. You have to have a gate. I know it's not beautiful. I know it's not aesthetic, but the consequences of a drowning are far uglier. And, and just having a gate doesn't mean that your work is done. You have to check the gate. In Florida, our gate was secured into the bricks around the pool and some of the bricks were loose. And that meant that the gate was faulty and had to be repaired. So be on top of that. Extremely, extremely important. It's not legally required in America to have a gate. So don't assume somebody has a gate just because they have kids. If they have a pool and they don't have a gate, no play dates. That should be the rule. The pool has to be four feet high on all four sides. Your kids can't get over. They can't get under. They can't get through. The latches have to be above their height. No space between the bottom of the fence and the ground. And never, ever, ever leave a gate open just for a second because you're running to get something. Accidents happen in just that second. Now, if you're thinking, okay, uh, uh, check, 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 check. No, we're, we're not even there yet. We just covered the basics. What you want to do is build layers of protection, okay? So if your playroom looks like a hurricane hit it, that's fine. But your pool has to be clean and it has to be clear so it's easier to see what's happening in the surface. So even if you're not using your pool, you want to keep the water clean. Yeah, it's expensive, but, you know, it's worth every single penny. Kids are curious and they're quick. And that's why a lot of parents put actual buzzers on their door. So every single time the door opens to the pool, any entrance to the pool, there's a buzzing noise and you are notified that somebody stepped outside. If you're not using your pool, well, keep it covered and make sure there's no ladder that's leaning into it because a kid can slip under the cover as well. Um, don't leave toys in the pool area. That's an important one. A lot of times kids end up by the pool because there was a ball there or because there was a floaty or because a toy was left behind or because one of those chlorine dispensers that are floating around the pool look like, look, like a toy. That's extremely important. Kids go to the pool, usually for another reason, lean over and then fall in. Now, as far as older kids go, our rule always was no one could swim alone. Not a grown-up, not a teenager, not a lifeguard. People generally shouldn't be swimming alone because accidents do happen and we don't know. So set up that system in your house that if somebody's swimming, they have a buddy, they have a partner, there's somebody at the pool, somebody's aware that they're swimming or doing laps, watching from a window. Nobody should ever be swimming with nobody knowing about it. Obviously, you don't want glass bottles by the pool, alcohol, loud music. And if you're having a barbecue, it's generally better if your kids eat, wait 20 minutes for the food to digest, and then go into the pool. You don't want kids eating in the pool and swimming and laughing and, God forbid, choking and not being able to get your attention. All of these things happen so quickly, and water just becomes a death trap when a kid is struggling. So if you're having a barbecue and you guys are swimming, consider doing the swimming, having the barbecue, benching, taking a minute, giving the kids ices, cleaning up, and then letting everybody go back into the pool. The last thing you want to do is put up a big sign where everyone can see it that has Hatella's number, 911, and your address. A lot of times people are at a pool and they don't know the address of the home. And when a kid drowns, every single second is crucial. So have a sign at your pool, a big sign that all the parents can see with your address, with your phone number, and with Hatella's phone number. The last thing I want to recommend is a film called Drowning in Silence. It just came out actually this month. 
on Apple TV, which is iTunes, essentially. And a mother shares her journey after she lost her son to drowning. So check that out and keep your kids safe and do what needs to be done because these tragedies affect us all. These tragedies affect us all. And like Charlene said, this is not a child that drowned. It's our child that drowned. And we all have to ask Hashem for Yeshua for him. So again, please light Shabbos candles early. Please take an extra mitzvah. Tell your kids about the situation. Rafal Chayameh or Ben Sima Chasha needs a Rafu Shalema. And please protect your kids, protect your pools, and let's all have a happy, healthy summer and fun swimming season. This week's episode of the Weekly Squeeze has been brought to you by Swing It Playsets. Summer's almost here. Do you have a gorgeous playset in your backyard? Because if you don't, your kids are missing out on hours of fun. And that's why I want to tell you about Swing It Playsets that are custom designed for your little ones. Whatever you can possibly imagine, Swing It Playsets can build for you. The most magnificent swing sets that are built to be treasured. Each structure is crafted from solid wood beams encased in weatherproof PVC for a lifetime of free uninhibited play. You have a 20-year full-service warranty, handcrafted in the USA, certified playground safety inspector, and passionate designers. At Swing It, they don't just build play sets. They build the most beautiful, colorful outdoor play environments designed to be enjoyed by you and your whole family for years to come. So whether you need surfacing, play structures, playhouses, babies and toddler zones, big kid zones, outdoor eating areas, pool houses and sheds, gazebos, cabanas, or even an area for your pet, Magic comes in all shapes and sizes when you go with Swing It Play Sets. The link is in my show notes. All right, just a reminder that the giveaway is still on. I'm going to be announcing the winner on Thursday if you would like to win four Mosaic Press books, including the one that we are going to be talking about today, Reclaiming Dignity. Head over to Apple Podcasts, swipe down, tap the fifth star, and leave me a five-star rating. And thank you to the person who pointed out that I've been saying apartheid wrong all this time. I really appreciate that. I wish you'd have told me earlier. <laughs> it's apartheid, apparently, not apartheid. Well, whatever it is, it doesn't exist in Israel. That's the most important thing. So yeah, if you would like to win four Mosaic books, including Reclaiming Dignity and Whatever It Takes from episode 107, Rabbi Shia Hech's new book, you can still do that. So head over to Apple Podcasts, leave me a review, send me a screenshot. You can email it to me. The link is in my show notes. And one of you will win four brand new Mosaic Press books. Okay. Let's move on. Boni Olam apologizes for erasing women. So if you don't know, Boni Olam is a wonderful, meaningful, important organization that helps couples raise money for infertility and help over 50,000 couples with their struggle to have children. So when this email was sent out suggesting that one of their prizes was inappropriate because it featured a woman... Well, that wasn't a good look, especially for an organization that is here supporting women and helping their dreams come true. So what actually took place? Well, from what I understand, they had an auction where if you gave more than $180, you could win four cookbooks, including Busy in Brooklyn's new Totally Kosher. If you've been following her or if you've listened to the episode that I had with her, episode, let me check real quick. I like when you guys go back and listen just in case you're a new listener and you didn't know all the famous people that I've talked to. So you can check out episode 75 for my conversation with her before her book came out, Totally Kosher, which is doing great. So somebody wins this cookbook and they receive the cookbook in the mail and then Boni Olam sends out an email 
that says that they apologize for offering this book as a prize because it contains inappropriate photos. Inappropriate was the word they used. Now, Hani's cookbook, I don't have it in front of me, but it does have beautiful, beautiful photos of her and her children lighting Shabbos candles and baking together, so on and so forth, because it's a beautiful cookbook for women that features Jewish women and that encourages kosher food and kosher a kosher lifestyle. And that's why Hani didn't go with Art Scroll for her second cookbook. She went with another publisher, a secular publisher, because she wanted to put those pictures in. This was her vision. Anyways, they send out this email and they actually instruct people to cover up the photographs, like put a sticker on it. And you could only imagine the reaction after Chachmat Nashim and Flappish Girl posted about this and people were just horrified, disappointed to the point that many people actually emailed, um, canceled their donations and made a tumult online. And then lo and behold, miracles, amazing wonders like no one's ever seen before. Boni Olam actually sent out an email apologizing for their decision and posted this on Instagram. Dear valued members of the community, we want to apologize for the recent email sent indicating that the publication by Mrs. Hani Applebaum was in any way inappropriate. We take full responsibility and apologize for any heartache, discomfort, or loss it may have caused her or her audience. We recognize that the cookbook Totally Kosher is a beautiful publication that honors the role of Jewish women and did not intend to imply otherwise. We aim to create a safe, respectful, and inclusive environment and are taking action to ensure that an incident like this does not happen again. Kol kavot, kol hakavot. It is not easy to apologize, but they did. And you have to give credit where credit is due. So good for them that they retracted this ridiculous idea. And hopefully other organizations and schools can and communities can learn from them, including this particular organization, the Spring Hill Times, who wins the Most Offensive Shavuos Contest Award. Yeah, there was only one contestant. <laughs> Ma Ahafti Tortecha contest. The wonderful day of Shavuos is coming. Show Hashem Amatulaf is Torah. This is a flyer. Boys, boys until age seven, start learning now a parak of Mishnayis and make a siyum during the Yamtiv of Shavuos. Boys eight and up, start learning a Masechta of Mishnayis and make a siyum during the Yamtiv of Shavuos. Write down what you learned. Send your name, age, complete address, and telephone number to the Spring Hill Times at gmail.com. Um, and you can win three Sfarim up to a value of $40. Girls, how do you enter? Well, you have to bake a delicious cake in honor of Shavuos or make a cake or a sign congratulating your brothers or father on their Limud HaTorah. Take a picture of your cake and send it in. <laughs> oh, we have to think long and hard when we perpetuate these rigid roles, the countless ways in which our community culture makes domestic labor the be-all and end-all for the firm girls and women. That's what Avital Rachel shared on the Chachmat Ashim post under this particular flyer. And I have to agree with her. Our children are our guarantors. And we have to think long and hard how we are going to make sure that they want to preserve the legacy of the Torah going into Shavuos. And that is why I'm really excited to tell you about a new book specifically for your kids called The Torah's Little Keepers. This is not an ad. I saw it on Facebook. I reached out to the author. I said, can you send me the actual PDF of the book? And she did, and I was absolutely delighted by how beautiful this book is. I'm very particular about kids' books, and I thought the message here was great. She wrote to me that this project had been on her mind for years. There's not enough Shavuos books on the market, and there's no books that talk about the children being the guarantors of the Torah. It's such an important concept. It's so hard for children to grasp, because what does guarantor even mean? 
Devorah told me that the straw that broke the camel's back was when she was teaching her own kindergarten students, not in a Chabad school, in a Torah Sema school, and none of the teachers had ever heard of the Medrash, that the children are the guarantors of the Torah. And she felt that there was a lack of not having a book to read to the kids. So she sat down and she wrote this book and she hired an illustrator in November and the images are stunning. And I'm going to read you a little uh, section from it. Not the entire thing because I want you to go ahead and buy it for your favorite little one. So if you have a kid um, or a niece or a nephew or a grandchild and you want to send them something for Shavuos, that's not a cheesecake because you're like me and you don't bake. Well, you can send them the Torah's Little Keepers. I'm going to put a link in the show notes and read you a little clip. Not the whole thing, just a little clip. The sun shone brightly over the desert sand. A light breeze blew while birds chirped as they flew overhead. The Jewish people set up their tents next to the mountain. It wasn't the tallest mountain in the desert, but it had become the most beautiful. Just this week, green grass had sprouted all along its slopes, and wildflowers of all colors covered its base. At the foot of the mountain, a wooden fence stood surrounding it. In the camp, the people were excited. They had been traveling in the desert for many weeks. Now they had finally arrived. This mountain was Har Sinai. This was the place where Hashem would give the Torah to the Jewish people. Mothers and fathers, grandparents, children, and little babies all watched as Moshe Rabbeinu got ready to climb the mountain. The graphics are beautiful. They're colorful, and they're just exactly like you would imagine the Jews in the Midbar. Moshe, Moshe, Hashem did say, please answer me without delay. My holy Torah is very dear. The Jewish people must keep it near. Who will be the guarantor that no matter what, they will make sure to learn it and love it and keep it forever? to do the mitzvahs with joy and pleasure. Go ask the Jews and tell me, please. Who will give the guarantee? So Moshe Rabbeinu went to ask the Jewish people. And then the book unfolds where he asks the grandparents and the fathers and the mothers, but none of them are the right fit to be the guarantor for the Torah. So if you want to read this beautiful book and teach your children that it is in their hands and that it is a schus and a responsibility and a privilege to be the guarantors of the Torah, from the times of Moshe Rabbeinu. Well, this is the book for you. I'm going to put a link in the show notes so that you can order it today and get it right in time for Shavuos. All right. My guest today is Israel Bitone, the author of A Brief and Visual History of Antisemitism. It is not brief. It is very visual, an absolutely incredible book. You guys know that I love the topic of antisemitism because our world is in a crisis. And although so much has been written about the subject of antisemitism, very little has actually been done to educate the public specifically on this topic. Either curriculum is outdated or not comprehensive or not engaging or not interesting to younger audiences. Well, now we have a book that will fill that gap. A Brief and Visual History of Antisemitism is a must-have for every single household. How did the disease of Jew hatred spread so far and wide? Why has this hateful virus proven so resilient over time? The goal of this highly visual book is not merely to inform of what already transpired, but to empower individuals to make sense of the avalanche of anti-Jewish invective in real time. It has augmented reality technology, so you can use your phones to scan highlighted areas and retrieve a trove of bonus contents, archival footage, animations, official documents, and 3D objects that offer immersive perspectives on historical landmarks. Such a gorgeous book. I wish we didn't need it, but we do. And thanks to Israel Bitan, it now exists. And one of you are going to win a copy. More on that next episode. So without further ado, the executive director of Americans Against Antisemitism, Israel Bitan. Israel Bitan, welcome to the Weekly Squeeze. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Forward. Your book is a staple on my desk. My daughter just finished a book report for high school um, off of it. I have been 
reading it cover to cover every single Shabbos, highlighting, uh, marking pages and highlighting. There's just so much in here and I have so much to ask. It is such a gift, this book. So let's get right to it. It's a very big book. <laughs> Honestly, when I saw it first on Dove Hyken's Instagram page, I thought it was a small book. Maybe because it says a brief history of anti-Semitism, you think it's a booklet. I'm sure you've heard that before. Then I went to Guffin Publishing House. I picked it up. And I, I cannot speak more highly about this book. That's number one, like right off the bat. And everyone listening um, should take me very seriously when I say this is a book worth owning, worth having. Um, and my question to you is, first of all, what inspired the writing of this book? Second of all, how do we get it into every single school, Jewish, non-Jewish, all across the world and make you a millionaire at the same time? Absolutely. So uh, I don't stand to gain anything from this. Um, the only gain is it in getting out there and making a difference. Um, what inspired me uh, was really, there's two parts to that. And practically uh, in taking this on, it came down to starting this organization with Dove Hyken, Americans Against Anti-Semitism, to specifically not duplicate efforts, to look for uh, areas in this fight against anti-Semitism where we could be effective and helpful. And we immediately noticed a gap uh, in education that anti-Semitism had still not yet been treated as its own uh, curriculum is its own subject, not as part of uh, uh, an appendage to Holocaust history or to Zionism, uh, Israel, etc. So there was a very clear uh, need for it, opportunity. Any effort to combat anti-Semitism naturally involves and begins with education, combating ignorance, even among Jews um, who don't really realize uh, the extent, uh, especially young Jews who are thrust onto the uh, front line. So that was the uh, the, the practical impetus, if you will, for taking on this, you know, a, a monumental task of, of creating such a book. Is this your first book? Uh, no, it's my second book. My first book was a, also a work of nonfiction uh, on philosophy of memory, also including uh, the Jewish uh, perspective on memory. So um, this is not just a book, though. It's like a tomb. <laughs> um, for people listening, I mean, it has maybe 600 pages. I just want to go through it so people get the idea, because I've had authors on here before, but this is next level. Um, first of all, I love that you break down each chapter. You tell people how long it's going to take them to read it, what you'll learn about, what you'll gain familiarity about. I love the graphics. I want to talk about that for a minute, the process of laying out all those animations and graphics. That must have been a huge job. But I just, what's so appealing to me is that it makes anti-Semitism interesting and learnable. Like it's laid out in such a clear and precise and concise and, and intriguing way that I absolutely need to see this in every single school. I do think this is the answer to anti-Semitism. <laughs> I do. I think you have the key. <laughs> and that's why I'm so glad to talk about it. Okay. So you you decided that there is a lack of education, which there is, clearly. I Google. There's not many books like this one, if any. So how did you even begin to compile what you need, the, the content for this book? Not only does it have beautiful photographs and artwork, but it also has tweets and it has, I mean, it's very, very current. I mean, this book was, it, it's pretty up to date. Um, but tell me a little bit about how you decided to divide up all the content and make it into such a easily accessible, like it, it, it's a great, it's just, it's for all ages. It really is a masterpiece. So how, how did you begin laying out the book and having a vision for how you wanted it to look? So, uh, you know, when this project began practically two years ago, uh, it started, you know, the actual process of taking existing research that I had already done years earlier. I had started on my own just purely out of interest 
to really dig behind the question of outside of the Torah, outside of the Bible, what does the archaeology say about this land of Israel, this land that they call Palestine, uh, people that they call Palestinian? Where do we all come from? Uh, not because the Torah says so, but what, what would we find? And uh, that really was the uh, foundation of the uh, research that led to, well, how did anti-Semitism uh, figure into Jewish history? And I was pretty shocked myself to discover how far back it went, that this was not a few hundred years. This was not Spanish Inquisition time, Crusade time, uh, or even early Christian times. This goes way back. And and literally almost verbatim, the things that the uh, you know Greco-Roman uh, uh, authors were writing, it's the same stuff that we find today. So uh, it began, it, it was a two-year arduous process. We're talking about 12 to 14 hour days, 16 days a week for, you know, about two years. No, no weekends, no extended weekends, no, uh, you know, even Jewish holidays. Uh, you know, if I uh, could work technically, whatever it is, working. Um, so it's it's it was a massive undertaking. At the beginning, I didn't realize necessarily how big it would be at the end. I allowed the process to inform itself to be like, well, I have to consider the full range of this history and then try and de determine what should be included. And the, the brief in the title is is not really tongue in cheek. Um, but it ends up being that way because, yeah, it's definitely not brief, but it is still relatively extremely brief when you consider what I did not include there. Yeah, I have to wonder, like, what was left on the cutting for? Like, what did you decide was not going to go into the book? Because it's literally packed page to page. You could tell that you had a ton of content and a ton of work went, went into this. So what was left on the cutting room for? Like, how did you determine that this is not going to be in the book, let's say? So and anything that is like... Uh, a repetitive series. There was a series of pogroms uh, in Germany. I mean, going through each city and listing, you know, that becomes at the end of the day, uh, a certain amount of heaviness that what's the purpose? So we can, uh, you know, talk about a certain phenomenon within anti-Semitism that has some sort of unique, distinct attribute. There's a point in knowing that. And those are the uh, the key stories, the you know, you have to understand Dreyfus. You can't not include Dreyfus. You can't understand Zionism and Herzl and and all of that. that Martin happens. Luther so, and so yeah, the really Holocaust. Examining obviously. more than two thousand years of history, and then the thread, seeing the thread, and how okay, you had uh, uh, you know Greco-Roman. It was not religious hatred. You didn't have to hate Jews, and then it became doctrinal. And really, what I try to show is that. The entire Jewish uh, uh, historical trajectory is filled with very unique turning points from the very idea of, of pushing this monotheism um, uh, to uh, this notion of um, outgrowth religions that now comprise 4 billion people on the planet. Uh, there is no outgrowth to Hinduism. There is no outgrowth to Buddhism. Uh, Buddhism and Hinduism have no antagonism toward each other. They don't really uh, consider each other and their truths are, they can be complementary and they can be uh, divergent. Makes no difference to anyone really. But you have this thing where Jews gave birth to this antagonist religion that needed Judaism, but also needed to dispossess it. That created this 2000 year long antagonism that we've seen that has bubbled over into genocide and hatred um, that we must also say that in the 20th century, Christianity has come a long way in the West um, to you know, making amends, to correcting its own understanding of its own uh, history, of its own scriptures. Um, that that say things like, I mean, how could you not hate Jews if you're going to talk about Jews in the synagogue of Satan, you know, which uh, people like Farrakhan like to quote. It, it's tough. So but there are people that have done uh, that work. But the point was to show this historical continuum, because 
you cannot understand anti-Semitism just looking back, peeling back a few layers. You have to go back to the beginning and march your way forward. And then the picture is extremely clear. Right. And it is it is consistent because history repeats itself. And as you write here, the only thing that's never changed is the irrational degree in which anti-Semitism is consumed and shared. Uh, I never had a book like this growing up. I knew there was anti-Semitism. My grandmother was a Holocaust survivor. But to see it all here printed out in full color, I have to say, um, it gave me a little bit of anxiety and it was overwhelming. But I do appreciate that at the end, you take the time to explain to people what actually can be done. And we'll we'll get into that. It's funny because if you would ask your average person what is anti-Semitism, they would say Jew hatred, but they wouldn't be able to define the different variations of it. And I see it on Twitter all the time. And it is so frustrating, especially coming from Palestine, when they call the IDF Nazis and you know, the appropriation and distorted reality and denied history and, and denied victimhood and appropriation. You might think those words are not important, but they are important because when you're getting into these arguments, which you don't recommend often, but when you are getting into these arguments, A, it's important to have the facts, which you do provide here, and B, there can't, this can't be a war of nastiness. You know, There has to be a clear and articulate way to express that what the other party is doing is destructive, is a blood libel, and like all the pogroms in history, can start a serious, serious a rampage against the Jewish people. That's how dangerous it really is. So I appreciate all those terms. Was it important for you to be able to explain to people the different types of anti-Semitism and how we can like articulate and express it and, and call it out for what it is? Absolutely. Uh, the goal here, as you mentioned, was, and I, I stated that at the, in the book at the end, in the, how to combat anti-Semitism, is that uh, you know, there's been a movement lately, uh, the Hasbara movement, it's kind of like, uh, we need a debate. And the, the reality is, for multiple reasons, there really is no debate, because the debate itself is not legitimate, because the other side is too scared to debate. Uh, they don't want to normalize us, they don't want to humanize us. Um, that's fine. And the reality is, the point of this book and who was written for young Jews in particular, it was not to create debaters, because uh, I'm sorry, someone comes to you and says, you don't have a right to exist. You're like, whoa, 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 let me debate that. Let's debate it. Let me show you why I have a right to exist. No, no, no. That's not what this book advocates. It advocates for yourself, for the individual to strengthen yourself so that you know, you don't need know why you don't need to debate, why there is no debate, why any genuine person looking for the facts, you have to go and work extra hard you know, to find the falsehoods. The facts are right there. They're not, they're, they're hiding in plain sight. So the idea here is, is to strengthen people and to help them understand what they're likely to encounter and what we're encountering, you know, nonstop. Like you said, you, you go on any social media channel and you're just going to see from the right, from the left, white, uh, you know, every, every color in the spectrum in, in the name of everything, Jews and uh, controlling this, controlling the media, controlling the banks. Um, so, you know, and, and that's a, a, a constant thread, but it is important to understand those distinctions because in some cases it's not about debating, but it is about calling out specifically with very prominent public figures who, if they do not get slammed down, and it's a bit of a double-edged sword because we feed into it and we kind of elevate those people in that process. And it's a very, uh, that's where it can get complicated. And that's why I always tell people, if you're not sure, then, you know, don't throw yourself into it. I've seen like, I've been on these clubhouse things uh, when it first started clubhouse and you'd have these well-intentioned uh, young Jews who would be there and in these forums that would, you know, get uh, anti-Zionist and nasty pretty quickly. And they would spew out some talking points and a lot of, you know, falsehoods as well. I mean, they would say things and just like, 
you, you're making mistakes. You're, 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 you're kind of feeding into it. Um, and then they turn around and they, they capitalize it. So you don't need to take that on to combat anti-Semitism. Uh, you need to strengthen your own identity, strengthen your resolve. If you're going to be on campuses going out there, um, you don't need to go and be a crusader, Zionist crusader and wave, you know, wear the, wrap the flag around you. And you don't need to do that, but you also need to know uh, why you should hold on to your positions, why you should be proud of your history, because that's the other side. Yes, there's uh, so much much uh, pain and, and destruction and hurt and genocide and persecution in these pages, but there's resilience, there's there's rebuilding in a way that I think is uh, far more reinforcing than the uh, trials and tribulations are, are, uh, are you know, hurtful and, and heavy. Well, one thing's for sure, after seeing all this ugly anti-Semitic propaganda, I would much rather be a Jew than the person creating any of oh, yeah. this. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is pretty sick stuff. And it's, like you say, it's just intellectually dishonest. These are people that are regurgitating the same old tropes from 100, 200, 500, 1,000 years ago and just riding on that. So like Ben Shapiro says, facts don't care about your feelings. If you come prepared with the information, you could have a conversation that gets somewhere. If you come just with names, it's a waste of time. Tell me a little bit more about the actual creation of the book. This this is a, a digital resource as well. I've never written a book, but now I want to write a book with a R. So <laughs> how did you do that? How did you determine like, okay, we don't have enough content. So now we're going to go film and put that in and make the app. That's next level. Yeah. So so who, whose idea was it? You know, how much does that actually cost? And, and when it came to finding a publishing house, I know that you went with Geffen. How did you determine who's going to print this monster of a book? So um, the in truth, aside from researching and writing, my background is in design and marketing, so in editorial design. Um, so I've done uh, all kinds of uh, layouts and uh, publishing in, in that world and yeah, newspaper magazine. Um, the goal here was I, I, I know that I had a unique mix of skills to bring to the table that I could combine for this purpose. One of the reasons you know, we took the visual approach, obviously, in trying to get to a younger audience today, you need less text, more visual. But it was more than that. It wasn't just a gimmick. And even with the AR, which I've done in, you know, for uh, for profit clients, and it's in a sense gimmicky, it has this cool aspect to it. Oh, great, something popping off your phone. Here, if that was all that it would provide, I would not have done it in the end. But the fact is that uh, the visual is a strong, you know, central part of understanding anti-Semitism is understanding the visual legacy of hundreds of years of propaganda. No other group, no other hate group has such a continuous production of hate material produced over such a great expanse of time and space. No other group, which is why, you know, you can just uh, pick, like cherry pick, what type of hatred do you want? What are you into? You're into finance, we'll find you your stuff. You're into uh, uh, proclivities, we'll find you your thing. You're into global, you like global, think global, no problem, we'll find you your thing. Um, so, you know, you, you have that aspect. So it was important to show the visuals, but on the AR level, it was more important to show the archival footage. For example, this thing where right. Hitler got up in 1939 and said in front of the whole world before launching the war, that if there's going to be any war, it's the Jews who are going to be annihilated and you're like wait what I, you know you hear about the you Holocaust. have to see it to believe it yeah you oh, literally have to see it to believe guard. it they couldn't do anything they didn't know i mean they were there so you have to go back you have to see what was happening in the 30s and you have to see it to believe it because some of it is right. so incredulous you're like wait what uh there's an example here of this palestinian woman uh claiming that the big ben uh, the, the Jaffa clock tower was really, uh, uh, you know, it was stolen uh, by the British and it was taken with this whole concocted story. And they're like, 
where did they invent this from? And you're like, no, no, no serious person can be advancing this stuff, but yes. So you need to see it. Um, and I, I had, uh, um, you know, plenty of experience implementing such, uh, you know, technology with print material and it elevates it. And it just made sense for this, for reaching a young audience to bring the history to life. And also uh, at the end of each chapter, I kind of do a summary lecture, uh, you know, short uh, visual, uh, visual as well um, for people who are a bit more, audio visually inclined than reading text um, so that you don't need to go through it. You don't need to have the AR to read the book, but it's it's a bonus. And for some people, they may even prefer it. But it looks to me like you prepared this to be a textbook. It has questions and reflections. I mean, this is, uh, do you want it, um, educators to buy one book, make photocopies and give it out to the students? Are you comfortable with that? Is it something you want a school to invest in? Every student should have one. Like, what did you have in mind? This This is really... This has to be in schools. If you're listening and you don't have this in your Chabad house or in your Jewish Hebrew school, like get on this. I'm going to put a link in the show notes. But is that something that you'd feel comfortable with? By, yeah. by all means. I mean, the, the emphasis was uh, the sweet spot is young Jews um, in, you know, probably junior and senior in high school, uh, first year, second year in college. Um, and we've said it's gone to certain to schools certain schools are in the process of reviewing it it's a it's a process to determine well how do you integrate that do you put it as part of a, a you know you in, implement a few parts of it for three weeks as part of your holocaust education you create a whole new uh, structure a new hour a new day of the week each each uh, um, educator and each school can decide for themselves right. i personally uh, I'm all for uh, the more the merrier, whatever way they want to make a, a, a photocopy and they get it out there. Um, there are grants available we can work on if there's specific schools that that you know really want it, they want to uh, adopt the, uh, the the material, then we can work with them. The goal is to get it out there. It's not a, a moneymaker. Um, this actually for Geffen, uh, we went with them because uh, they were immediately on board. And this is a hybrid type of book. It doesn't fit in any single um, uh, category. Now, while it's curricular, it's not exactly a typical textbook either. And you, you can tell by the questions and the way it's structured that it's not looking to create a bunch of fact checkers. It's there to uh, see if people have integrated the material and they're thinking along, you know, the correct line. So it's certainly created for the private schools. It's not meant for public schools to go through their whole uh, approval process and the common core. It's not about that. It's mostly to get to uh, young Jews. By all means, they should, I, I would recommend that they, um, you know, check it out, have a look. And some of them have put it in their libraries. They've made it available uh, as a resource. Um, like I say, some who are working on uh, other courses and it may have book reports or, or the like on anti-Semitism. They're uh, introducing that. It's been in some JCCs and the like. So, it is also just uh, beginning to get out there, but by all means, uh, you know, there's, uh, you know, uh, the further it can go to that cohort, uh, then that that will be um, the, the determination of its success. After that, in reaching a broader audience, it, it can just as well appeal to Jews as non-Jews. And like you said, younger and older, it was meant uh, designed to not be juvenile. It's not like uh, uh, that young in nature, but at the same time, it is specifically geared to uh, you know, young. Right. It's very versatile. It, it's a coffee table book. It's, you know, you could read it Shabbos afternoon. Um, like I said, my daughter's doing a, a report on it. I, I think that there's so many practical uses for it. And I'm so glad it actually exists. So you said that Geffen printed it for you and you're not going to become rich from it. I don't, to me, this book seems like such a winner and that's why I, I'm surprised that more people haven't heard about it. I'm happy to talk about it today on the podcast. So like I said, if you 
are looking for something extremely comprehensive about anti-Semitism, this is your book. It's absolutely fabulous, and I, I would love to see it in more stores and more classrooms. And, and I, like I said, knowing the issue is half the solution. So, you know, a book like this, 600 pages, we are 60% there. <laughs> There's so many people on the forefront of fighting against anti-Semitism, whether it's on Twitter, whether it's making YouTube videos, whether it's making books. But a lot of it's inconsistent. And I have discussed this before, I can't necessarily engage in these fact-driven conversations about the history of Israel because I'm not an Israeli and I don't know my Israeli history well enough as, let's say, maybe Rudy Israel does or Noah Tishbe. Do you see discrepancies amongst the people that are out there trying to f push back against anti-Semitism? Do you wish there was a more comprehensive, let's say, course that they all could be taking? Or are you impressed by what people are offering and and you know what I mean like as the official uh, Bucky the maven of this topic what are you seeing on the floor what could we do better should people be backing down should people be speaking louder what what's missing and what are we doing well enough so I mean that's a great question um there's there's no doubt that uh, the effort can uh, can do well and better in being more unified and coordinated, whether it's in terms of messaging or facts or, or just strategy um, or even focus. But the reality is that absent that, well, what do we expect? That individuals should not take initiative? Thank God that there are individuals who do feel compelled. And uh, for the most part, most of those individuals that are out there and that have been successful in getting out there have good things to say, and they're doing uh, good things. And the reality is that it's a, it's such a torrent, an avalanche of hatred, that there can't be enough. We're, we're uh, understaffed. You have to realize something else. In this global um uh, campaign to delegitimize de Jews, Judaism, Israel, there is pretty much a concerted effort. There are state actors, state backers that are the center for the money, the funding, for the strategy, for the implementation, um, literally using government resources. We're talking about Qatar. Right. Anti-Semitism is not a figment no, of our imagination. No, no. The, the reality right. is they have a global conspiracy that they're, they, it's not a conspiracy because they're pretty open right. with it. It's a figment of their, yeah. of their imagination. Yeah. They're, they're but we're on the receiving end. They, they come right. and they sprinkle their money and think tanks here on tech companies, on uh, newspapers, and that's how they craft their anti-Israel message. So we, they on their side... You could see it. You could watch from the side and see a very consistent thread with the way they're getting together in Congress and the way they're mm -hmm. organizing at the political level uh, with the DAs. And you could see this movement happening and it's coordinated. And on our side, we know the Israeli government was supposed to have a, a ministry and they were supposed to deal with this. I mean, they have the most. We're food. always well, late on delivery. All the information that you can possibly get. But they're dealing, I get it, they're busy with other type of uh, activities, but you tell me that the Israeli government can have a better handle and, you know, generating the type of responses, even with their own stuff, when things happen and, you know, they're accused of killing someone wrongly, it, the amount of time it takes them to get, now I understand there are totally. relational considerations and you can't just throw out a video from uh, the front lines and, and post it on social media within 10 minutes, there has to be a process, but uh, what I found interesting, actually, in the archives, in the AJC archives, going back to 1948 and 1949, immediately with the refugee crisis that broke out, this notion of Israel being bad at its own PR, it, the criticism was, it was there then. It was exactly the same then. They have never understood it. They never because. 
because the haters are just throwing lies and seeing what sticks. Oh, We're easy. not just going to throw right. up information and see right. what sticks. It has to be, right, you said it has to be accurate, it has to be researched. And to create substance. And nobody cares a year uh, later. Right. A year later, nobody cares. No, not even a year later. The, what would, the difficulty is that how it's not easy to counter a person who's going to come and cry and claim that their house, the rubble you see is but from an Israeli Apache helicopter and blah, blah, blah. Look, you know, any human is you're just going to react to that. Now go ahead and counter it. How? So what are you going to give that's emotional as a reaction? You can't. You're going to give some facts and you're already losing part of that war. We have to have to figure out as a group, as individuals who are taking this on to shine more of that light on the emotional impact, the emotional side of the story that, um, no, Israel is not a victim. Okay, but it is uh, embattled and beleaguered. And and, and the real point is this, uh, you know, kind of. If we were, I was to summarize the whole point of this book, not the point, the what's behind it, because you say, OK, tell me about anti-Semitism. So I could tell you about the long history and then this one hated and this one killed. And for this reason, that reason, ultimately, the reasons don't make a difference. Oh, right wing, left wing. Let me tell you, the Jew in uh, Crown Heights, uh, Borough Park, who gets hit in the face for being Jewish, whether it's a white supremacist, a black supremacist, a Muslim supremacist, uh, it makes no difference. It makes no the, the pain is the same, the hurt, the hate, you know, the trauma, it's all the same. The reality is there are two core components, I think, that really help us understand anti-Semitism and this idea of hatred altogether. And that is, where does hatred come from and where does anti-Semitism come from? And hatred, you can look back, you look at uh, evolutionarily, survival. There's a reason uh, maybe for why you can get scared, why you get happy, even why you might get angry. But hatred has no, uh, no use in survi- for survival. You, Hatred is taught. It's indoctrinated. But even, it's created. Even it's institutionalized. Enemy, even your military enemy, you gain nothing. You have no advantage by hating. So we have to recognize that hate is almost this superfluous uh, attribute that we have in humanity. Where did it come from? And if we look at the Torah, for example, the first example of interpersonal squabble, hatred, is Cain and Hevel, right? It's Cain he killed his brother out of a jealousy. Jealousy and hatred are tied together. Right. So mm-hmm. on the individual level, we have to recognize that hatred is not something that is worth indulging in, yet we have a whole world out there where people constantly, I hate this, I hate that group, I hate these people, Wait, how is this even acceptable? This notion of hatred needs to be entirely uh, rendered unacceptable. But okay, let's say we did that and we understood that hatred has no evolutionary uh, survival value. What is anti-Semitism in short and simple? It's a double standard. That's all. It's the corruption of the golden rule. It's the exact opposite of the basis of the Torah. The Torah says, treat others the way you want to be treated. Now, what is anti-Semitism? Is anti-Zionism anti-Semitism? It's simple. Apply the golden rule. Would you like to be treated that way? Take China, take Russia. Oh, let's uh, erase them from the face of the earth. How does that sound? Oh, 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 no, no, it's just criticism against their, no, nobody would say that. Okay, how about uh, in the Russia-Ukraine conflict, uh, Ukraine sends their children to, to kill Russian children, and I'm sure the world is going to be like, yeah, you have to understand, that's, that's resistance, right? Oh, they're so courageous. No, nowhere else in the world. Is that logical? Is that acceptable? Is that laudable? But in one place, when it comes to the Jews, oh, a double standard. So that's all it is. In all of the history, it it boils down to hatred and a double standard. Get rid of the hatred. Get rid of the double standard. And yeah, we can have that Martin Luther King uh, dream, which is an old biblical dream, uh, the dream of a messianic era when uh, 
you know, uh, hatred is, has been conquered and is gone. It is not a thing because we don't need it. You can have differences, you can have squabbles, you can have uh, disagreements, but hatred, and, and this is true for Jews among Jews ourselves. This is the age old uh, story. And that's where I think at the end of the day, and that's why the book was focused and for Jews, because we have to fix what we need to fix regardless of what is happening beyond us. And we know, we know through history that when we're unified, that when we don't have hate among, among ourselves, we're strongest. And when we do, we know what happened the last time we were in Jerusalem and we had factions fighting each other. We know, we allowed the Romans to come and conquer. We, we, we burnt our own stores of food for God's sake, which led to mothers eating their, their, the, the limbs of their own children. So uh, we don't want to repeat that history. And it's, it's, it starts with us, ultimately. We can't expect of the world to, oh, they're going to treat us any different than the way Jews treat themselves. Right. Well, the Lubavitcher Rebbe said the answer to pretty much everything is increasing in acts of goodness and kindness. And when people say that, it almost feels like, seriously, that's what you want to give me, considering what's going on here right under my nose. I shouldn't tweet back something nasty, <laughs> but really not, because even though we're small in numbers, we are extremely powerful as a community, as a nation, as people, as individuals. We're very gifted. We have a lot of you know beautiful traits that we can use to our advantage. When we put out that positivity, it's going gonna, it's gonna to circle around. The problem is that, like, like you said earlier, the opposing forces are much quicker to pull the trigger and literally and figuratively and we are kind of left up with with cleanup on aisle seven so while it's all fine and dandy you did you do give more concrete instruction for how to fight back i think it's here in the last chapter hang on i want to pull it up um, and I thought, I, I just thought it was so beautifully done. I really just thought it was so beautifully done. And I wasn't left with like a feeling of, I mean, the first 45 minutes into the book, I was like, holy hell. <laughs> and then at some point I was like, you know what, this is coming together for me because I did feel as the book concluded that that came through very much, that there is so much ugliness and you see it. There's so much hatred in these photographs and it, there's so much distorted reality. And even on Instagram, when people tweet things, I, I bite my tongue to reply because it almost seems like childish. So really the most heartwarming thing you could take away from all of this is that in the face of all of this positivity, love, acceptance, Morahavas Yisrael, that's really going to be the only force that could overcome all of this ugliness. That said, I would love to see this book in more schools, in, like I said, in more Chabad houses, on more coffee tables. I do think knowledge is our strongest, um, information is our strongest tool. And this book is just, I mean, I'm looking at some of the things you did here. Like you, you made a list of all the reasons Israel is not apartheid, for example. Those are not small tasks to undertake. Did you do this all yourself? Yeah, pr- pretty much. Uh, it's, 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 but it's cumulative. What I did was, as part of the process, you know, talking about um, research dives into, you know, eras and, you know, all the books available, all the studies available, uh, you know, and as I go through that, and I do some writing ideas will come up. I had a, a notes, a running tab of notes, every little, all the things I found, all the tweets, I would go about my day at the end of the long day, I'd be going scrolling. I, Oh, this is going to be, thank, I would kind of thank each anti-Semite as, Oh, thank you. This case study oh, <laughs> reinforces that reinforces yeah, that. Yeah, right. you, spell, you give it you, on a silver platter. I don't, we didn't have to go and make things up. Here's the difference. They constantly have to lie. Even when Gaza is, is being attacked in response to their, they have to put out these fake images of, of, you know, girls that, that uh, stock images claiming it, it's like really all the time. Your cause is so righteous that you're constantly making up these lies, uh, false victims, false murderers. Um, and on the other side, 
you know, they put everything out so willingly. It's like but they're not hiding anything. So that's the reality. Also, anyone who really want to under, uh, wants to understand this, it's out there. There's there's no real difficulty. It's like, oh, it's so complicated. I don't really understand. Explain it to me. It's the golden rule. Replace Jew, you know, with your group and see how that feels. Try it on for size. Hey, don't Christian me down. If I, would you like if I said that? Don't Muslim me down. Don't black me down. Don't Asian me down. No, no. Like it doesn't sound. Oh, but it, but it's a it's a compliment, really. Oh, Jews are good with money. It's a compliment. Okay. It's so some people will say, oh, I, you know, I wouldn't mind being said uh, I'm not Jewish. And if people said, hey, you're good with money, that sounds like a good thing, right? But if you were killed. Uh, you know, by the millions. If your ancestors lie, were killed, yeah. then you can mm -hmm. talk about that. And the reality is, the "don't do me down" would be the equivalent of the stereotype for your group. So, if your group is uh, said to be a, a bunch of this, a bunch of that, whatever you know, each stereotype is, which is not acceptable for any group. It shouldn't. No, we're living in, a, in an era where people are hypersensitive and they need to to, to recover from microaggressions. And so then it's a phenomenon where it's a one. It's the one geopolitical conflict where the humanitarians. Uh, get involved in hating one of the sides. It, it, it doesn't exist anywhere. Nowhere in Africa, uh, in Asia, in, in Russia, Ukraine, uh, you don't see people engaging in this anti-Russian hatred of like, oh, the Russian people need to be erased. We need to erase Russia. Like, what? What are you talking about? China. China right. has over a million Uyghur Muslims in con literal concentration camps. The Muslim world doesn't seem to care. The U.S. doesn't right. seem to care. Okay, even with that, would anyone advocate for the eraser of China? No, no sane person would. But when it comes to Israel, after the Holocaust, yeah, let's talk about that. Uh, it's so it's so horrible. It's so horrible. And 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 this book really breaks it down in such a beautiful way that people can actually see a what's at stake if we just you know let this fester and fester because it's not going away. And b how it's institutionalized and how it was streamed as a religious belief throughout millennium and how this is not something that is new now that we have a country and this is not something new now that the Palestinians are screaming louder than ever and that the leftists woke up and decided that they're best friends with the actors at Pallywood. This is something that has been baked to the cake for the longest time and to have it here in such a comprehensive way it gives me something to be able to sink my teeth into. <laughs> this is anti-Semitism right here in between these two bookends. And I'm going to understand it. I'm going to internalize it. And then I'm going to do the best I can, like you said, to put good out into the world and recognize that this is just hate. And hate, well, we don't need it. And I do believe in the power of love. Obviously, we need a lot of people out there. Um, doing positive things. And for people listening, you don't have to be on Twitter and you don't have to write a book and you don't have to, you know, be making videos. You simply could represent the Jewish people in a positive way and make an impact day by day in that in that way. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. So good luck with the book. Um, I'm going to put a, a link so people can check it out, can order it. I highly recommend it. Thank you for writing it. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, it's it's truly a gift. Keep fighting the good fight. You know, we should just go from strength to strength and be able to share positivity. I want another book called A Brief and Visual History of, let's think of something positive, <laughs> of how awesome the Jews are. <laughs> there you go. That'll be the next one. All right, Israel. Thank you so much. Have a good day now. Thank you. Appreciate it. So there you have it, episode 109 of The Weekly Squeeze. Don't forget to enter the Mosaic Book Giveaway Contest by leaving me a review on Apple Podcasts. Share the podcast with a friend. Full safety is crucial. You can save a life. And if you're considering a swing set, check out Swing It, our wonderful sponsor. If you're interested in advertising with the Weekly Squeeze, check out my show notes for a link. And I will see you on Thursday.